Many think alien abductions are just tall tales coming from people wanting attention. But for others, especially those that have experienced them firsthand, they are proof that alien life exists. The next four stories chronicle the personal experiences of several individuals, each one more fascinating than the next. These are four incredible and strange alien abduction cases. Number four, Kelly Cahill. Kelly Cahill was driving home from a friend's house with her husband near Melbourne, Australia on August 8, 1993, and it was after midnight when the two spotted a strange set of lights. The craft that these were attached to looked round in shape with several windows running along it, and it was hovering silently up the road ahead. Without warning, it shot to the left in a split second and disappeared. The couple was baffled, but they continued to drive, and after about a mile, they were suddenly inundated with bright lights coming from above. The light was so intense, Kelly had to cover her eyes. Their hearts raced, and her husband kept on driving, hoping to get away, and then after a few moments, the lights disappeared. Kelly asked him what had happened, but he wasn't entirely sure. They could smell vomit, even though there wasn't any in the vehicle. They continued to drive on, trying to make sense of what had just transpired. Shortly after, they both began experiencing piercing stomach pains. For Kelly, it would start in the abdomen and radiate up through her shoulders. Once home, she noticed a strange triangular mark just below her navel, similar to that of a laparoscopy cut. From there, Kelly's stomach pain worsened, and after three weeks, she went to the hospital to see what was going on. Doctors discovered she had a womb infection and said that she might have even been pregnant recently or had some sort of gynecological operation to which Kelly denied. Her memories of what had happened that night were fragmented. Initially, she didn't remember even seeing the UFO, but her husband did. It wasn't until they visited the same friend and drove on the same stretch that she began experiencing a deep terror as the events of that night crept back in. She recalled it wasn't just the smaller UFO they saw, but also a much bigger one that had been in a field. She asked her husband to pull over, and they both got out of the car to take a look. They crossed the road, jumped the gutter, and walked towards the object. When she looked back at the highway, she could see another car with three people who got out to investigate as well. They stood there looking at the massive craft when suddenly a tall, black figure appeared before them. She described it as being seven feet tall with fiery red eyes, similar to that of a fly. She was so overcome with fear that she began screaming, They've got no souls. And it's then that she realized there were even more figures behind the initial one that had appeared. Groups of them started to glide towards them, and Kelly became hysterical. She then felt something hit her stomach and began to go in and out of consciousness, hearing bits and pieces of conversation before blacking out completely. What's so convincing about this story is that Kelly wasn't the only one that experienced it. The people who were in the vehicle actually corroborated her statement and described being accosted by the same tall black figures. These two women vividly remember being on the craft while the gentleman with them can only recall the incident through smell and hearing. Two unrelated groups of people experiencing the same strange occurrence makes a very convincing argument for the authenticity of this story. Even more surprising is that the second group says there was a third car that also stopped at the site. However, this witness has never come forward. 
Number three, Betty and Barney Hill. Betty was a social worker while Barney worked at the U.S. Postal Service. The couple was driving home to Portsmouth, New Hampshire after a weekend trip to see Niagara Falls. It was September 19, 1961, the day Betty observed a bright moving light in the sky. She reasoned it was probably a falling star, but later on as the lights moved erratically and would grow bigger and brighter, she urged Barney to stop the car so they could watch it and also give their dog a bathroom break from the long drive. Betty looked at the strange lights again and realized that it must be a UFO. Barney at first thought it was a commercial liner, but after seeing the sudden turns it made, began to agree with his wife. They went back to driving while keeping an eye out on the lights. They observed that whatever it was was quite large and seemed to be rotating. It was one mile south of Indian Head when they realized the strange craft had started to descend rapidly towards their car, forcing Barney to stop the vehicle in the middle of the highway. Now hovering 100 feet above them, Barney stepped out with his binoculars and a pistol in his pocket to take a closer look. He could see windows around the craft and what looked like humanoid figures staring back at them. It was here, Barney in a hysterical panic rushed back to his car saying, they're going to capture us. The last thing they remember was speeding away in their vehicle when they heard a thud then a tingling sensation that ran through their vehicle and then into their bodies. It seemed like it lasted just a few seconds, but somehow they had driven 35 miles south with no recollection of how they got there. When they reached home, they noticed both their watches had stopped moving. Barney had scuffs on the toes of his shoes that weren't there previously, and Betty saw that the dress she wore had a cut by the zipper and that the inner lining had been torn. She told her sister about the incident and she urged her to report it, which she did. She called Peace Air Force Base in Portsmouth and they confirmed that they had seen the UFO on their radar as well. Later on, however, this was retracted and that what the Hills likely saw was the planet Jupiter and mistook that as a strange craft. Betty started having vivid dreams that bothered her so much she ended up writing them down in her diary. In it, she chronicles that she was forced to walk in the forest with Barney behind her, almost in a trance. They entered a metallic, disc-shaped craft and Barney was separated from her. She was ushered inside a room where she met the leader. Afterwards, another figure appeared, which she dubbed as the Examiner. This being thoroughly looked at her ears, mouth, nose, ears, hands, and throat. He collected samples of her fingernails, hair, and skin. Afterwards, he thrust a needle through her navel, causing Betty to scream in agony, but the examiner simply swiped his hand across her eyes and the pain disappeared. Although they tried to move forward with their lives three years later, they sought the help of Dr. Benjamin Simon. It was Simon that placed the Hills under hypnosis in hopes that they could recall what happened that night. Barney said that while he was being examined on the craft, he mostly kept his eyes closed. Meanwhile, some details recalled by Betty under the hypnosis session slightly differed with her recordings in her diary, but both shared similar details of the encounter overall. She also exhibited more distress compared to Barney, and in one session had tears flowing down her cheeks. She later drew the famous star map supposedly showcasing the origin planet of the aliens, which the leader had shown her while she was on board. The encounter completely changed their lives and to this day the case of Betty and Barney Hill is one of the most well-known documented cases 
of an alien abduction ever to exist. Number 2. The Falcon Lake Incident Stefan McCulloch was a mechanic by trade, but he loved prospecting for silver in his spare time. He left his home in Manitoba, Canada on May 19, 1967, spent the night at a hotel, and in the early morning of May 20th, headed to Falcon Lake. By 9 a.m., he began digging and a little after noon, was startled by several geese grunts. He looked up, and that's when he saw two cigar-shaped crafts flashing red and orange lights. They were slowly descending, and as they approached, he could see they were more oval and disc-shaped. One of the crafts stopped descending while the other continued down and landed on a rock about 160 feet away from where he was. The remaining object in the sky changed colors into gray and then flew west. The stationary craft also turned gray, and a strong sulfuric smell emanated from the area. Unsure what to make of it, he spent about 30 minutes simply looking at the craft, taking notes and drawing it. Then a small door opened on the craft and he noticed lights from inside illuminating it. He approached cautiously, thinking that it was an experimental American device. He even called out sarcastically to the Yankees, asking if they needed any help, but he got no reply. He could faintly hear voices inside and called out again, but this time in Russian. After no reply, he tried a few other languages, but still, nothing. Curious, he poked his head inside the door panel and saw vertical and horizontal grids of lights all around. The moment he stepped back, the doors immediately closed like the shutter of a camera. He went on to examine the exterior of the ship, which had no visible seams at all. And when he ran his gloved finger on the surface and then took a look at it, the tips had melted off. Suddenly, the UFO shifted and what looked like the exhaust vent was pointed at him. It expelled some sort of gas or steam, which immediately burned his shirt and undershirt. Stefan quickly took these off while the craft lifted upwards and flew away. He then began to feel nauseous and developed a headache, and could smell a strong sulfuric scent just like before. He couldn't find aid near the hotel, so he decided to go back to Winnipeg, where he was immediately admitted to the hospital. A family physician examined him and noted that he was confused and dazed, but rational. He could see hair loss and a few raised oval sores and a distinct pattern on his abdomen. Soon, government officials did a full investigation and Stefan took them to the site where they collected soil samples and tested for radioactivity, which came up positive. They also found a semicircle impression on a rock about 15 feet in diameter where vegetation had been destroyed. Faults in the rock were found positive for radiation but it wasn't found in any samples outside of the perimeter circle. Stefan fought physical ailments for years after the incident that had similar symptoms to that of being exposed to radiation. He passed away in 1999, still with the burn marks scarred on his body. Today, the case remains one of Canada's most prominent UFO encounter stories, and the Department of National Defense still considers the Falcon Lake incident to be an unsolved case. Number 1. The Maury Island Incident Although it's not as popular as the others on the list, a unique and terrifying UFO encounter occurred on Murray Island in Washington State just two weeks before the famous Roswell UFO crash in New Mexico. 
1947, floating logs escaping from lumber mills commonly plagued the Puget Sound. It was a hazard that needed to be cleaned up regularly, and it was Harold Dahl's job to do just that. Dahl was a seaman who worked on the Harbor Patrol alongside his supervisor, Fred Chrisman. On June 21st, Dahl, together with his two men, his son and their dog, went out in Puget Sound collecting wayward logs, and by 2 p.m. their boat had reached the eastern shore of Murray Island. It was then when he looked up in the air that he noticed six donut-shaped crafts flying about 2,000 feet above his boat. They were approximately 100 feet in diameter, with their center hole about 25 feet wide. Five of them were circulating over a sixth one, which remained at the center. Soon the middle ship descended and hovered just 500 feet above the water. They headed to the island's shore because Dahl was scared the craft would drop on them. Then the crew heard a loud thud and saw thousands of white metallic objects raining down from inside the craft. Most of the debris landed in the bay, but some hit the beach. Dahl picked up a few pieces and found they were lightweight white metal. The craft then dropped black metal that looked like lava rock, and when it hit the water, steam erupted. Some of the metal hit Dahl's son, injuring his arm and killing their dog. After this, the mysterious craft rose into the air and headed west. Dahl's radio wasn't working, so they sailed towards the dock and once there, rushed to the hospital to help his son. When he called his supervisor, Fred initially didn't believe him, but when he went to Murray Island himself, he gathered up rocks and metal and even saw a craft appearing overhead. The day after the incident, Dahl met a man wearing a black suit who invited him for breakfast. This man didn't ask Dahl any questions, but instead narrated to him exactly what had happened the day before. Afterwards, the man in black warned him never to tell anybody, otherwise he and his family would be in great danger. But Dahl and Chrisman, convinced they had witnessed something spectacular, sent samples of the medal to publisher Ray Palmer, who in turn contacted pilot Kenneth Arnold, who was known for spotting the flying discs over Mount Rainier just two weeks prior to this incident. By July 31st, investigators from the Air Force were sent in to examine. First, Lieutenant Frank Brown and Captain Lee Davidson questioned the witnesses and also collected samples of their own. These officers had to fly out immediately after, and they boarded a B-25 bomber along with two others. But 20 minutes into the flight, the plane crashed. Investigators say the engine caught fire, but some people thought they heard anti-aircraft guns firing just before the plane went down. Soon, the FBI and Air Force broadened the investigation and both concluded that Dahl and Chrisman had completely lied about the incident in a bid to become famous. Afterwards, an FBI agent told the men that if they stopped perpetrating the stories, the government would not prosecute them especially since their supposed hoax caused the death of two officers. So they agreed, and they stopped talking about the incident completely, and claimed it was a hoax from the very start. But a few years later, in 1950, Chrisman retracted his statement and said that everything that they had talked about actually happened. Of course, two weeks afterwards, the Roswell crash in New Mexico caught worldwide attention, and the focus of UFO encounters had a much larger story to deal with. Today, many believe that Dahl and Chrisman made up the story, while there are those who say they didn't. The men in black are often talked about as a secret government agency that keeps tabs on those who have witnessed such unusual events. 
It's believed this is who took Dahl to breakfast that morning, and that they'll go to severe lengths to keep anyone from telling the truth about UFO encounters and aliens. Those were four incredible and strange alien abduction cases. These encounters serve as strong proof that there could be more about our universe that we don't know. All we need to do is keep an open mind, and maybe one day we'll have definitive proof that we're not alone. If you like this video, then please subscribe to our channel so that each week we can bring you a new Scary Mysteries video to check out. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next week.